Upon hearing the Old Testament lesson and the Gospel lesson appointed for today, you might well surmise that the preacher is going to say something about the subject of prayer. And indeed, that's what I want to talk with you about today. We, uh, we find ourselves again on the road with Jesus this morning on the way to Jerusalem, and he has been praying in a certain place, and one of the disciples says, teach us to pray. And Jesus responds by giving them the words that are the elements of uh, what we know as the Our Father, the Lord's Prayer. And then Jesus goes on to talk about the theme of persistence in prayer. And then he makes the assertion that, um, that God does hear our prayers and God answers our prayers. Now, I'm not going to talk with you this morning about the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father, the, the, the best known prayer in the Christian tradition. We all know it by heart. We say it. Uh, we often don't think about what we're saying. And uh, I, I commend uh, to you a, a study of the Lord's Prayer. There have been whole books written about it. But I'm not going to talk about it this morning. Instead, I want to talk to you about persistence in prayer and this assertion that God hears our prayers and answers our prayers. And I want to first say something that's one of my core beliefs, which is that God likes it. Indeed, God loves it when we spend time praying to God. God really loves that. Um, if you will recall, in the first chapter of the book of Genesis, it says God created human beings. Uh, he created human beings in the image of God. And we often take that word image to mean that we somehow bear the divine stamp of God in our very being. As my old Quaker friends like to say, there is that of God in every human being. But the word there, selim is the Hebrew word, it translates uh, into something that's even richer than that. We are created to correspond with God. We're created to be in communion with God. We're created to be in this relationship with God. Um, and I am reminded of, of a poem that some of you might know. It's, a, it's an old uh, poem by the, the African-American poet James Weldon Johnson, God's Trombones, which is a gospel preacher's account of the creation. And I have a favorite line in that poem. God is looking out on the void uh, and before the world is created. And, and, it, and in the poem it says, and God said, I'm lonely, I'll make me a world. I always love that, God, I'm lonely, I'll make me a world. Have you ever thought about the fact that God might just get lonely if you don't spend time hanging out with God? Think about that, uh, plan on spending some time with God. But onto the theme of persistence in prayer, Jesus tells a story about a man outside at midnight calling to a friend inside saying, please uh, lend me three loaves of bread for a friend of mine has arrived and I need them and, and because of his persistence, finally he will get what he wants. And then we hear of Abraham, uh, that delightful story from the book of Genesis in which God is really angry with Sodom and Gomorrah and Abraham, says, Abraham starts praying and says, suppose for the sake of 50 righteous people, uh, would you spare the city? And God says, yeah, for the sake of 50 righteous, I will. And then Abraham keeps on going, how about 45? Well, yeah, okay, God says, how about 40, 30, and on and on till even 10. And God says, yeah, for the sake of 10, I will not uh, uh, destroy the city. And you, and you go, wow, chalk one up to Abraham, you know, prayer warrior, mighty good stuff. However, spoiler alert, you know what happens to Sodom and Gomorrah later. God blows it away. Lot's wife turns into a pillar of salt, etc., etc. Um, but... Um, but on to this theme of persistence in prayer. If we're persistent, does God hear us? 
does God answer us? I was pondering that question again in my life this past week, and I thought of two particular instances of prayer in my experience that are forever etched in my memory. One of them was when I was between my first and second year in seminary, and I was doing a unit that summer of clinical pastoral education, which is what seminarians typically would do But after their first year of seminary in the summertime. You would go and be in a program for 10 weeks, um, supervised in groups and individually, but you'd be a chaplain at a hospital or another facility, a clinical setting of some kind, and, uh, and learn what pastoral care was about. And I was assigned to Washington Hospital Center that summer. I served mainly on the cardiac care unit, but many of us, all of us who were in the program had to go on a rotation of being on call periodically to spend the night at the hospital and to respond to any emergencies that might be come up that we would be summoned to. And indeed, I was spending the night there one night and I was summoned down to the waiting area outside the emergency room and I walked in to behold um, a very somber, still African-American family. They were standing there. It seems that they'd been having dinner together and after dinner, the father and the family had collapsed and apparently had suffered a massive heart attack. And he had been rushed to the hospital. They were desperately trying to revive him and save him. And so the family was, was, was standing there, just a very, this element of gravity in the room. And I went in and I, I, I said, I spoke to them and I said, well, I'd like to say a prayer with you. And they said, please. And, um, you know, I want to say something parenthetically here, which is that uh, uh, clergy and other denominations, particularly the Baptists, have it all over us Episcopalians as far as extemporaneous prayer goes. They know how to do it. It rolls off their tongue. And uh, we're, we're, we're stuck with these beautiful, tidy little colics in our prayer book. Um, but I, I was doing my best at extemporaneous prayer, and I, I said, let us pray. And I'm sure I prayed for, for God's healing presence to be with the patient, and I prayed for the family to know that God's love and, and caring and strength was there for them and whatever. And, and, and then I said, amen. And the family just continued in this grave stillness. And about two minutes later, suddenly a piercing cry came in the night. It was the voice of the daughter in the family with tears in her eyes. And she just cried out into the night, God, don't let my daddy die. And I there was stillness again in the room, and I, I thought, wow, that's saying something. That's going to the mat with God. That's prayer. And I don't know if she was praying that persistently in the silence that followed. Probably was. But I, after a while, I excused myself. I left. I came back a little while later to see how things were going, and the family had left. And I found that the patient indeed had died. They couldn't save him. They couldn't revive him. And I, I regret to this day that I never was able to have a conversation with the daughter. Um, if she were a person of faith, was that a deal breaker? What happened that night? God didn't answer her prayer. Um, you know, I would love to know where she is today if she, if she were a person of faith and how her faith has evolved over the years or, or lack thereof. But the, another instance of that same prayer came to me in my own life almost seven years later. I remember the exact date of the prayer. It was May 30th, 1992, and I had been here on the cathedral close in the morning because there had been a special uh, convention of the Diocese of Washington next door in the cathedral, and we had elected that morning Jane Dixon as our suffragan bishop. And I was driving from the cathedral towards Sibley Hospital to see my wife who was there. 
She had been diagnosed, well, actually she had two and a half weeks before that, suffered a splitting headache that had left her nauseous and dizzy and unable to walk. And she thought it was the beginning of a sinus infection, but I thought there's something worse here going on. We went to a neurologist who said, I'm giving you a, cat, a CT scan. He did, he said, I don't find anything abnormal, unusual. I think you must be overstressed. You probably need to see a psychiatrist. But the, the pain had continued unrelenting and now she was in the hospital and I was driving there. It was a rainy afternoon and there were tears in my eyes and I said, God, please don't let my wife die. Um, and it took another two and a half months before we knew that this horrible headache was the insidious beginning of an incurable cancer, lymphoma. And Catherine died 11 months later after a weathering all this different sorts of treatment to try to combat the illness, all the while knowing that there might be a brief remission, but there would be ultimately nothing we could do. And I'm sure I prayed probably consistently during that time that God would spare the life of my, my wife uh, and for, for myself and for my children and for her, but it did not happen. And I, it, I realized later, it, it took me months, maybe years, to, to, to figure out that, well, God did hear me. And God did answer my prayer if we believe that there is a life that is larger than this frail mortal frame that we inhabit. If there's a life bigger than that life. Um, because I realized that Catherine left me with a testimony of faith throughout that entire illness, I, and that, that, that lives in me now. I remember her going in for radiation therapy, and people often talk about combating cancer, fighting it, and Catherine said, I don't think about fighting it. When I walk into that room to get radiation, I'm singing. I'm singing to myself, when the saints go marching in, oh, how I want to be in that number. And I thought, wow. And then there was one morning when I went up to see her, she was at, at Georgetown Hospital, uh, and medical rounds were taking place. And I got to her room and all the, the, the staff were standing outside her door. There were residents and an attending physician and nursing staff, and they were all peering in the, the doorway to her room. And I wondered, what, what are they, why are they all standing out here? And, and I, I looked, I, I went up and stood with them and I peered through the, the doorway there was my wife sitting uh, with her back to everyone. She was in a chair. She had a small portable keyboard in her lap, which she was playing, and a book of Schubert Lieder on a stand in front of her, a music stand, and she was singing. She was singing one of Schubert's Lieder. And I, I thought, well, I guess the staff is politely waiting for her to stop so they can come in and speak to her this morning. But then I realized, no, they were in awe. We were all in awe of the fact that she was doing a thing of beauty in the midst of oppressive circumstances. That always stays with me. And then two weeks before she died, she was in the hospital. She spent most of the last month of her life in the hospital. Catherine made friends with one of the housekeeping staff. She was a woman of color from the Caribbean. And uh, Catherine had a pattern for uh, making cloth dolls. And she and this housekeeping person were making dolls together uh, in, in, the, in this person's spare time. And about a week before she died, Catherine looked at me one day with fierceness in her eyes. And when I walked in and she said, John, 
I've got to do something. You've got to do something. We've got to do something about the racial injustice that goes on in, the, in, the, in this institution of the hospital. I see it every day with the staff here. We've got to do something. Oh, her passion was, was, was something intense. That housekeeping staff person came to her funeral. I remember her weeping. She'd lost a good friend. And I, I, it took me a while to realize that God answered my prayer, not in the way that I expected God to answer it, but Catherine lives. She lives in me right now because I tell these stories about her. She is alive, and, and I carry her with me in that way. And I've had to come to the conclusion in my life that God is not like a vending machine when we pray to God. We'd like it to be that way. We would like to be able to put in our coin like in a vending machine and press B4 and get our M&Ms or our Three Musketeers bar or whatever. We ask God for things and sometimes, but I, God hears us. But God gives us an answer that's different than the one we were looking for exactly. It's different somehow, but it's still there. And um, I, uh, I don't know, I, mean, I know that Catherine prayed during, during her illness that she could be alive to continue to be a mom to her children because that was a primary vocation in her life. She wanted to be a good mother. We had three kids, but um, that was not to be. But I also wondered if she prayed for the Holy Spirit because that was what I saw in, in the, the times that I could see her making a testimony to her faith in, uh, during the hospitalization. Which brings me to the tagline of the gospel lesson this morning, which is Jesus says, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Maybe that's what we all ought to be praying for is the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. God answers that prayer directly. Think about the Gospel of Luke in which the Holy Spirit plays such a vital role. The Holy Spirit will, will uh, come upon Mary and she will conceive and bear a child. Think about Elizabeth who hears the greeting of her kinswoman Mary. And upon hearing that greeting, when Mary comes into the room, she says, she's filled with the Holy Spirit and says, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb, and how is it that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when I heard your greeting, the babe in my womb leapt for joy. And that Mary responds, filled with the Holy Spirit, with the song that we know through the ages. My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked with favor on his lowly servant. From this day, all generations will call me blessed. The Almighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Or think of John's father, Zechariah, rendered mute when he could not believe that his wife Elizabeth would have a child. And then his tongue loosened finally on the day of John's naming. And he sings another song, come down through us to the ages. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has come to his people and set them free. He has raised up for us a mighty Savior, born of the house of his servant David. Or think about, think about uh, Peter, impetuous, stumbling Peter, on the day of Pentecost, suddenly transformed into a brilliant, elo eloquent preacher who converts hundreds of people in Jerusalem that day and the day that follows by the power of his preaching. 
And I often think of that song, uh, one of my favorite hymns in the hymnal, hymn 506, when one of the verses says, tell of how the ascended Jesus armed a people for his own, how a hundred men and women turned the whole, the known world upside down. That's the power of the Holy Spirit working in us, given to us as a gift when we ask for it. So, does God hear our prayers? I think God hears our prayers, but maybe if we spend some time in hanging out with God so that God doesn't get lonely, we can think about not only the best prayer of all, which is a prayer of gratitude, that we're alive, and that we have all these gifts given to us by God, but also we can pray for the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we might just figure out finally, as a dear old friend of mine said, that prayer is much more about not changing the things around us, but prayer is about how we ourselves are changed. In the customary silence that follows, I invite you to, to think about times in your life when you've prayed to God persistently and God answered you, or, but answered you with a in a different way than you had anticipated and how you could be grateful for that. Or you might just spend a few moments thinking about how it might be for you in your life and as a witness to the world when you pray for the presence of the Holy Spirit. In silence and in response to the gospel, let us pray. <laughs>